prick John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon said, and he will bleed Bible. Born in 1628, God saved the poor John Bunyan, and four years later, he became a lay minister. Bunyan belonged to a church that was separate from the Church of England. Uh, For several reasons, the church was separate, one of them being that this church baptized believers. And these separatists enjoyed freedom of worship uh, for a long time, uh, but that ended in Bunyan's lifetime. Bunyan was arrested for preaching in 1661 for refusing not to preach. And he would later spend 12 years in prison. And it was that experience that influenced him to write his most famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory for the Christian life. In it, Bunyan depicts Christian, the main character. All of his characters don't have real names. Christian is the main character as a pilgrim on the journey to the celestial city. It's a uh, journey book. On his journey there, Christian is not just a pilgrim. Christian is a warrior dealing with the battles within and the battles without, battling against his heart, battling against the pressures of the world he walks in. Now, there are certain places on Christian's journey where he must travel through in order to get to the celestial city. And one of those places is called Vanity Fair. Believe it or not, it is not just a magazine. It is from Pilgrim's Progress. Vanity Fair, that is is in this place where merchandise of all kind is sold and where travelers are enticed and seduced and where pilgrims like Christian stick out like sore thumbs and are attacked. Now the question becomes as Christian enters Vanity Fair, how is he going to survive it? How will he say no to its allurements and overcome its attacks? Well, he says Christian must hold on to the solid joys and the lasting treasures that he already has that cannot be purchased at Vanity Fair. And Christian must keep moving forward with eyes to the one who is bringing him to the celestial city far better than Vanity Fair. Now, at this stage of the journey in Isaiah, Isaiah writes to pilgrims, pilgrims who are essentially in the middle of Vanity Fair, like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrims who are tempted by their surroundings, pilgrims who are discouraged by their prospects. Now, throughout the passage we'll be in this morning, Isaiah chapters 13 to 23, Isaiah will speak of a faith in God the Creator that overcomes and perseveres through all the dangers and siren calls of Vanity Fair. Now to bring us up to speed where we've been so far in Isaiah, we've just been in it one week, but we're taking it in larger chunks. Remember that God spoke through Isaiah the prophet during the time when the monarchy of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. This is a time that's further described in the books 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles to give some context and background to the time Isaiah is writing in. Now Isaiah spoke throughout the reigns of four different kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now this time was very close to recapturing the golden age that Israel and Judah once enjoyed. Times were very good, but now threats were beginning to mount around Judah. 
And moreover, threats were beginning to mount within Judah as well. Judah forgot the Lord, their true king, either serving him with just a shallow devotion or rejecting him outright and replacing him with themselves. So with new forces pressing in on Judah, the question became, where would they turn? Where would they run to? Maybe even more precisely, the question became for Judah, in whom would they trust? Last week, we tried to orient ourselves to the day and time in which Isaiah the prophet spoke. In the opening chapters of the book, we saw examples of how the people of Judah lived. Many different examples. And we summed it up basically in one word that the Lord uses. That word is rebellion. All their living, all their kind of living can be summed up in rebelling against the Holy One of Israel, God himself. Refusing to live with him as their true king. And we saw how God should and did respond to their rebellion in a just kind of judgment. We also saw how God remembers mercy in judgment as well. That he would bring light to their dark situation through one figure. That's the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And through this Messiah, God would satisfy his right judgment against their rebellion and bring peace with him, not just for Judah, but peace with God for all the nations of the earth. Friends, this is the gospel in miniature, even in Isaiah. Now, while there are glimmers of hope throughout the opening chapters of Isaiah that we saw last week, the entire first half of the book, roughly chapters 1 through 39, are mainly, the, the main thrust of the first half of the book is warning and judgment. Warnings and judgment from God to Judah for how they were living. That is the main thrust of the first half of the book. Now, we're up to speed a little bit. Turn with me to chapter 13 of Isaiah. You'll find it on page 576 of the Pew Bible. Chapter, uh, chapter 13 of the book of Isaiah. Now, we're not going to read all of chapter 13 to 23. Uh, we would be here for a while. Uh, but we are going to flip through these chapters together. Now, while the headings in your Bible, you'll see kind of bold, italicized prints uh, over most Bibles. They are not a part of the original text. They're put there by the translators. But they're often helpful. They're helpful guides to reading the Bible. Uh, so, just flipping through these chapters, right at the start of chapter 13, you see Isaiah's talking about Babylon. He's talking about Babylon. And he does really talk about Babylon through all the way through chapter 14, although he has brief words for another nation called Assyria in the middle of chapter 14. Then at the end of chapter 14, he talks some about Israel themselves. And then all the way through chapter 21, 14 to 21, there's prophecy against just a litany of different countries. So we see Philistia at the end of 14. We see Moab beginning at 15 and 16. We see Damascus, which is Syria, and Israel who had united with them. Chapter 18, we see prophecy against the nation called Cush. This would be Ethiopia, modern day. And then in chapters uh, 19 and 20, 
more about Cush, but especially about Egypt. And then 21, back again to Babylon. And then it gets into uh, nations called Edom and Arabia. Chapter 22, you'll see there, Isaiah speaks back to his original audience, to Jerusalem, to Judah, the southern kingdom. And then he picks up in 23 again with another country. This time it is Tyre. Um, and it's interesting. That's kind of flipping through the whole section. This whole section, Isaiah is speaking to Judah. That's who these words are to. He's speaking to Judah, though, about other people besides Judah. Now, what's the deal with that? Why would Isaiah do that? Well, there are plenty of reasons, plenty of subsequent lessons from Isaiah speaking to Judah about other people. But perhaps the main reason for this, the main point of our time, what he's trying to communicate, just this big point he's trying to communicate to Judah, is that our hope does not come from the world. Our hope is in God. Our hope does not come from the world. Our hope is in God. Just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, and like Judah in Isaiah's time, like both of them, we must go through the world. We must go through Vanity Fair. We can call this sort of our horizontal journey. Now, what Isaiah says to God's people is how we relate to the horizontal is shaped by how we relate to the vertical. Our relationship with God is going to shape, for better or for worse, our relationship to the world. That's how we're going to organize our time. Two big headings. We'll, we'll spend time looking at the horizontal of Isaiah's day, kind of the world's many dangers for the Judas people. And then we'll see how the vertical should shape that world, how the faith in God overcomes the world's many dangers. All right, so first big heading, the world's many dangers. Oh, friends, many of the hymns, our favorite hymns of the Christian faith, similar to Pilgrim's Progress, are going to tell the story of a journey. You know, beginning before Christ, and then how God saved us in Christ, and then what God is doing after Christ, bringing us home to be with Jesus forever. And one of these hymns you know very well that tells a story, you can guess it maybe, Amazing Grace. Just think through the verses. The verses tell a story. At the beginning of verse 3 of Amazing Grace begins, you might know, through many dangers, toils, and snares. Think of these chapters, Isaiah 13 to 23, as God telling Judah the many dangers, toils, and snares that's in their world. What a blessing it is to know that on the front end and not have to discover it when it's too late. The many dangers, toils, and snares in their world. Now, one observation many have made about this section in Isaiah is that God is pretty comprehensive with the nations he covers. He talks about pretty much all the surrounding nations of Judah. And it brings home this point that anywhere Judah looked, be it north, south, east, or west, dangers and temptations lie. Anywhere they looked, dangers were ahead. Now, what are some of these dangers, toils, and snares that each surrounding nation presented to Judah? Well, anywhere Judah looked, it would find pride. Anywhere they looked, they would find pride. Go back to chapter 13. 
find verse 11. We're going to be flipping around a lot. Going to be helpful to have a Bible open. Chapter 13, find verse 11. Remember, these are words against Babylon. But throughout the Bible, whether it's the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to the book of Revelation, Babylon is often representative of the world at large. So what does God say in verse 11, chapter 13? He says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Now we're going to get to describing God's response more a little bit later. But first, we want to see what is God responding to? He's responding to what he calls pompous pride. And who shows this pompous pride according to verse 11? Is it just one particular people group? Verse 11, the very beginning, does he say Babylon's pride? Now he says the world's pride. This is not limited to one particular person, particular group of people. The world's pride. Wherever Judah looked, they would find pride. Wherever they looked, whatever country they looked, they would find a people who have some reason to be impressed with themselves, some reason to trust in themselves, some reason, at the end of the day, to worship themselves. So like the rebellion we saw last week, the pride we see here takes many forms. At its core, it's all the same, but it takes many forms. So just take a brief tour. Notice three different kinds of pride. We see the pride of the strong. see the pride of the rich. We see the pride of normal people. Strong, rich, normal people. We'll start with Babylon, pride of the strong. Looking again at verse 11, what does their pride lead them to? That very last word in verse 11, ruthlessness. The pride of the strong leads to ruthlessness. Now, we know this from our history. We know this from our just experience overall. You think of the 20th century, the 20th century, the bloodiest century in human history. Concentration camps, gulags, forced famines, the statistics with millions of people included in them. It's often said that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. You don't even know what to do how to wrap your head around that large of a number. And what's the root of all of that that happened in the 20th century? It's pride. Pride. Pride will take the form of oppression when those in power and those in control have to have that and will do anything to get more of it, will do anything to keep it. Pride turns into ruthlessness and can turn into oppression. Now, lest we think that America itself does not have any skeletons of our own, pride has been a part of our past. Almost 5,000 people lynched from 1882 to 1962. Over 45 million abortions since 1970. Pride of the strong taking the form of oppression. Marks not just some people, marks everybody. The pride of the strong shows up and how the world treats God's people. It's the same reason why official religious and government leaders persecuted Jesus and early Christians. It's the same reason they do so today. Pride. 
love for ourselves threatened by anything that would seek to undermine it or that might undermine it. It's often said that the reason that the Roman Empire persecuted early Christians was not because that they worshipped Christ. It's because that these early Christians worshipped Christ alone. They would not worship Christ and the emperor. They would only worship Christ. And so they were oppressed. So when those who would make themselves king encounter the true king and those who serve the true king, they will shake their fists. They will feel threatened. And they will oppress those who worship the true king if they really carry out their pride. So go to chapter 14, find verse 11. It's going to be flipping a page, 578. God says this, your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your hearts, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Pride. Now, some take this as referring to Satan, but remember, the first thing that this passage is about is about the heart of the king of Babylon. You can see that back in chapter 14, verse 4. That's who this is addressed to. But we can say pride is closely associated with the devil. You remember Paul's warnings to his protege, Timothy. Timothy's searching for elders in the church of Ephesus. And one of his warnings, he says, Elders, watch out for pride. He calls this the snare or the entrapment of the devil. So if this sounds like the devil here, well then, what, we, what can we assume about pride? We can assume that pride is devilish. It's devilish. Well, chapters 13 and 14, and then chapter 23, kind of like bookends, to this entire section. Ways to encapsulate all the dangers that the world presents. Now in chapters 13 and 14, we see the pride of, the, pride of Babylon. This is the pride of the strong. The strong who want their strength and the strong who oppress others in order to keep their strength and get more of it. But then in chapter 23, we see the pride of the rich. Pride of the strong, pride of the rich. This is represented in the city called Tyre. Now, Tyre was to the north of Israel. It was a city along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Go ahead and flip to chapter 23. See what God says about Tyre. This is an oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste. Without house or harbor, from the land of Cyprus, it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Sidon, who crossed the sea, have filled you. And on many waters, your revenue was the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the Nile. You are the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, 
I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish, wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city, whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? You see, Babylon was a ruthless political power. Tyre, on the other hand, was a dishonest commercial success. Babylon ruled in the land. Tyre ruled on the sea. They even had ports all the way out in Spain. That's where the city of Tarshish was. Babylon used force. Tyre used money and seduction. But what matters in these kingdoms is both the same. Power matters. Ego matters. Pleasure matters. And this is the height of human glory and pride. Taking pride in empty things. Empty things that will go away. Pride of the strong. Pride of the rich. Now we can easily think of extreme examples, right? Extreme examples of the strong. Extreme examples of the rich. But pride is not limited to these groups, is it? No. Shows up in everybody, even in normal people. Flip back to chapter 15. Chapters 15 and 16, God's going to talk about Moab. Small country right by Judah. Now, chapter 15 begins with weeping, begins with wailing and mourning that floods all of Moab. The threats from the superpowers of uh, of the region affect Moab as much as they affected Judah. Moab is running for their lives. Those in Moab, you see in verse 2 of chapter 15, those in Moab run after the gods they have made. It says this, they've gone up to the temple, to Dibon, to the high places to weep. The high places is where they would worship. That's where they were running to. But then you get toward the end of chapter 15, opening of 16, And you see that Moab is beginning to go south into Judah. They're trying to find refuge there in their neighbors. And it's then when they try to seek refuge that they hear of the comfort that the Messiah, this promised king, will bring. How the Messiah will end the oppression from which they are fleeing. Look at chapter 16, verse 4. The hope that Moab is offered says, let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Normal people seeking refuge promised this just and liberating rule of the Messiah that will come from Judah. Now, how does Moab respond to this? Now, it's tough to tell whether or not their response is to this exact hope, but what comes right after this exact hope is very telling. Right after Moab hears of real hope from the Lord, it's then we read of Moab's pride. Verse 6, chapter 16. 
says, we have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, his insolence, and his idle boasting. He is not right. I'm on the last words about Moab in chapter 16. They go back to their high places. They go back to the gods they have made. It's as if these normal people in Moab have heard they're searching for hope, have heard of real hope from the God of heaven, but they would rather hope in themselves and go back to their high places. Friends, that is pride. That is pride. They were no superpower. They were not strong. They were not rich. They were just too proud to believe in the Lord instead of believing in themselves. Isn't that all of us on our own? So here is the world of Judah's day. Everywhere they looked, there was pride. In the strong, in the rich, in the normal people. We can read of more examples, but wherever they looked, they would find a people who had reasons to trust in themselves instead of the God of heaven. Now, the world of Judah's day is no different than the world of our day, is it? Pride everywhere, anywhere we look, anywhere we look, we are going to find people telling us to hope in ourselves, that what's most important is what is here. Arnold Toynbee, he's a a British historian and philosopher. He studied civilizations across the sweep of history. That's a lot of studying. And he concluded that self-worship is the religion of mankind. Self-worship. In other words, friends, pride is the religion of mankind. And it takes many forms. It takes many forms in our day. Just have to listen to listen carefully. Pride surrounds us. Here's just a couple examples. A couple examples. Now, I know it's more than this, but social media, you know, social media is a multi-billion dollar industry largely built on people building platforms for themselves. It's fueled on pride. It's fueled on people's desires to be looked at and have attention. That's their business. Y'all, listen to the news. I don't care if you watch Fox or CNN. And hear the moral outrage that takes place every day. Oh, look at what this other side is doing. We would never do that. Look at the lifestyles lauded and commended by the Home and Garden Television Network. HGTV. For sure. Now, I can critique house hunters with the best of them. Don't get me wrong. There is seldom, though, on HGTV, just an example, friends, just a small example, there is seldom a humble approach to buying and fixing a home. Seldom a humble approach. More often than not, it's an entitled approach that we deserve this and that having a certain kind of home is what will give us meaning and worth and will make life okay. That's the narrative underneath most of HGTV. Pride, y'all, friend, I hate to say it, pride is in Disney. And I'm speaking as a fan of Disney. 
parents, I know you just got let it go out of your heads just in time for Frozen 2. But I will spark your memory. Let it go, the famous song from the animated film Frozen. Uh, some of the lyrics, it goes, let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go, turn and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Now, don't get me wrong. This movie is very light. It's about a snow queen with magical powers. It is not exactly heavy. Well, what's behind those lyrics, though, for example, is that Elsa, this snow queen, looks in herself and expresses her true self over and against the opinion of others expresses her true self. That is what is most important to Elsa more than what anyone else thinks. She doesn't care about what's right or wrong. She must express her true self. That is the highest virtue commended by Frozen. Friends, that's called pride. Now, don't hear me saying that you can't be on social media, that you can't watch the news, that you can't watch HGV, that you can't watch Frozen. <laughs> Y'all, this surrounds us. This surrounds us. We should be aware of the values and narratives our surroundings tell us. We should not casually and carelessly consume. Friends, that is not walking wisely in the world. We should be aware of the pride commended everywhere we look. Even as I looked up the hymn, Amazing Grace, on Wikipedia, I got to the section under modern interpretations of the hymn. I said, oh boy, buckle up. It's going to get bumpy. <laughs> it said this, under Amazing Grace, it says, In recent years, the words of the hymn have been changed in some religious publications to downplay a sense of imposed self-loathing by its singers. The second line, that saved a wretch like me, has been rewritten as that saved and strengthened me, that saved a soul like me, that saved and set me free. Pride surrounds us. The danger for Judah and the danger for us is that we can look at all that surrounds us and buy into it. Ever, even ever so subtly, buy into it. This whole section, chapters 13 to 23, is God telling Judah, don't buy into it. What's surrounding you is not real hope. It is false hope. It has nothing to offer you. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Just an example of God saying this in a very, what would be a small detail. See how God describes Babylon. This is what this section is about. Chapter 21, verse 1, page 582. He calls them uh, the wilderness of the sea. Another way to put that, he calls them the desert of the sea. This has significance. One commentator points out a desert can't sustain life. A sea has water everywhere, but you can't drink a single drop of it. So this is the worst possible situation. Dry and wet together and no hope for life. This is what Babylon is, God tells Judah. Babylon has nothing to offer you. Don't trust in it. Don't admire it. Don't hope in it. God shows the empty pride of all the nations surrounding Judah. 
And he tells Judah, out of love, these nations, their strength won't save, their wisdom won't save, their wealth won't save, and by golly, their gods won't save. One more culture story that might help with this point. Uh, I watched an episode of the 90s sitcom Frasier recently. I'm a fan of several 1990s sitcoms. It's hard to find good ones now. Um, The show centers around Dr. Fraser Crane. He is a psychiatrist turned radio host and who regularly can't handle the problems of his own life, which makes the show funny. Um, The dog in the show, Eddie. Um, Eddie, in this particular episode, for some reason is depressed. And they can't figure out why. So comically, humorously enough, they call a pet psychiatrist to try to diagnose the problem. And the pet psychiatrist, after hours of studying this little dog, concludes that he is depressed because all the people around him are depressed. So this leads the cast on Frasier, all of them together, kind of to muse muse about how fragile their happiness is and how they really are depressed. And then they get into discussions just about the inevitable nature of death. I was like, wow, this is pretty deep, refreshingly deep for television, wow. (laughs) But it turns out that little dog Eddie was just missing his favorite toy. And when he found it, everything was back to normal. (laughs) Now, this was a light bulb moment for Frazier. He concludes then that life amounts to being like Eddie. Enjoy the simple things. And I thought, well... It's good to enjoy good gifts. It's good to have the attitude of gratitude. Now, is that it? Is that it? Is that the best this world has to offer? The simple things? We're going to settle for that. The world is full of pride, false hopes. The tragedy for Judah is that they did buy into it. Look at chapter 22. Chapter 22, Isaiah sets his sight on Jerusalem. You'll see there, the title is also giving. Uh, He calls them the Valley of Vision. It's another sarcastic or ironic title. Jerusalem, you may know, is set up on a mountain. It's called Mount Zion. It's a mountain where it's where you can go out, look, and see clearly. If there was a place and a people that should be able to have clear words from God and see clearly the hope that is in God alone, it was here, Jerusalem. But this mountain of clear vision become a valley. You can't look out from a valley. You can't see anything from it. Look at the mindset that Jerusalem had fell into. Chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. It says, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is what the people of God had settled for. This. No heart for what's important. No heart for what matters. Just a heart for the weekend. Friends, if there is a major takeaway from Judah's experience and the many dangers of the world, of our world as well, 
It's that our problem is not so much that the church is in the world. Our problem is that the world gets into the church. God has good gifts in this world, friends, yes. But have we settled and bought in to what the world has to offer? Are we deaf, blind, and numb to the world's pride, just grown so used to hope being in ourselves that we don't recognize that narrative anymore? So used to people deciding what's true for them that we've stopped asking what is really true. Do we value what the world values? Pursue what the world pursues? Think the way the world thinks? Spend our time and money the way the world spends their time and money. These are the dangers we face. Now in his entire book, especially in this section, Isaiah wants God to be so real for his people that we see the world differently. God to be so real for his people that they see the world differently. The vertical shaping the horizontal. Look at God's call to hope in him, not the world, not in themselves. God's call to hope in him. A couple of these. Chapter 17, verse 7. Go ahead and flip there. Just flipping back a page. Page 580. Chapter 17, verse 7. God's call to hope in him, not the world, not in themselves. He says, in that day, man will look to his maker. And his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not look to what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. Chapter 22, verse 8. God's call to hope in him, not the world, not in themselves. Chapter 22, verse 8. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water and the pool. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. One of the ways our pride shows up is how long it takes us to finally talk about God. Here's God saying to Judah, sooner or later, guys, sooner or later, you have to start talking about, living for, hoping in what actually matters. Who actually matters? God. In all the dangers, toils, and snares, whether it be our own pride, whether it be the entrapments or attacks of the world, or death itself, our hope is in God. Looking at the danger of pride in the world, we see how pride leads to oppression. We see how it leads to seduction. We see how it affects everybody, even normal people. We're just going to see the inverse of that. Of God being so real that we live like it, and have faith that overcomes the world. Three aspects of this. Faith that overcomes oppression. Faith that overcomes seduction. And just as a summary way to put it, faith in the overcomer. So faith that overcomes oppression. Here are the words from James 4, scattered throughout the entire Bible. 
God opposes the proud. Scattered throughout the entire Bible, God opposes the proud. Have you ever thought of those being hope-filled words? More kind of stuffy words, maybe, instead. That's how we normally think of it. God opposes the proud are hope-filled words. Now, we who live in quiet neighborhoods with nice dining rooms and, you know, the lights on may have a hard time appreciating this. You know, I don't think Middleburg Heights has ever been sacked and pillaged. (laughs) So it's fitting, then, that we bring up We bring this up on the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. It's one thing to talk about enduring oppression. It's another thing to have lived through oppression. Concentration camps, being arrested, being beaten. Those realities are not limited to the Bible. Those realities are not limited to years past. Those realities still happen still happen frequently. Just this week, just this week, you look at persecution.com, different stories. Just this week, in Sri Lanka, the predominantly Buddhist nation, six Christians walking their way to church, 10 villagers, beat them with sticks, ended up in the hospital, each one of them. Just this past week, in Cameroon, Africa, the terrorist group, Boko Haram, destroyed the homes of several different pastors. Just this week, In eastern India, a young Christian woman was killed in front of her apartment, in front of her husband and children. And those who did it were heard afterwards saying, any other Christian who lives out their faith like she did will suffer the same fate. And what do we say to all that? We say human justice, human justice, simply can't see everything. Human justice cannot go far enough. We think of extreme examples like these. We think of extreme examples from history. You know, Hitler killed 11 million non-combatants, and then he committed suicide. How is that justice? We feel this here in in the United States to some degree. I'm going to single her out, but do you talk to Aaron Downs, who is a public defender for men who skip child support, and ask her about the limits of human justice? Sorry, Aaron. You came to mind. What do we say to that? What do we say? We say our faith is in the God who opposes and overcomes the prideful oppression of the world. That's who our faith is in. One truth that comes out through this whole section about the different nations is the good news that God is the God of all the earth, not just a subset of the earth, not just a particular people group, He is not a local tribal deity. He is the maker of all people. That means in part, friends, that there is no oppression hidden from God's sight. And that's good news for us. Good news for us who have felt the limits of human justice. So God's judgment, it's not just there. It serves a purpose. He makes right what is wrong. He brings peace when peace is not there. You can just look at the results of him judging Babylon back in chapter 14, verse 7. You can go there if you want. The results of him judging Babylon. He says, after this judgment, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Our hope 
is in the good and perfect judge of the earth. God assures us throughout this whole section that even when we think the wrongs and oppression that have been overlooked by the world and that are forgotten, even when we think that, that God will still accomplish his purposes. And that nothing, even the world's cruelest and most powerful tyrant, can keep God from accomplishing his purposes. Later on in chapter 14, verse 27, he says, For the Lord of hosts is purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? That God sees all oppression and that God will make it all right does not mean that we cannot speak to oppression today. does not mean we can call out injustice today. But what it does mean is that we don't have to lose our sanity here today. Because God has promised to do this. And he's promised to do this through Jesus. We can live as he calls us to live. Faith in one who's overcome oppression. And faith in one who will do that. Look at this faith. There's an example of this faith. The difference that trusting God makes in enduring oppression. Romans 12. Just this perspective. Here, this perspective. How can we live with this perspective without God who overcomes oppression? Romans 12, Paul says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A faith that overcomes the oppression of the world, the pride of the strong. But like we saw, we live in a world that comes at us, not just through attacks, but also through its pleasures. I know there are softball pleasures, easily hit them out of the park, ones that are obvious to us, money, sex, highs, but even deeper than that, deeper than that, every culture has its own idea of the good life. Every culture. Every culture has its own idea of what we need and the circumstances that need to be in place on earth in order for us to have a good, satisfying life on earth. Every culture has those things in place. They're all not necessarily bad things. But what if I told you that we have all that we need for the good life right now? Chapter 17, verse 10. You can turn there if you want. You read that verse. What if I told you right now, that right now, Christian, you have God. Right now, you have God, the God of your salvation. Right now, you have, or friend, you can have, God, the rock of our refuge or shelter. Here is God showing Judah all that the world has to offer and saying, what you are thirsting for cannot be satisfied by what is here. And then we read Jesus saying later on, he says, whoever is thirsty, come to me and let him drink. And I will give him the water, uh, living waters, and he will never thirst again. Oh, we have a faith in one that overcomes the seduction of the world because we have faith in the one who is better than the world. 
Friends, Jesus being so real to us that it changes how we relate to everything else. This is a perspective that the Apostle Paul had. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Friends, don't settle for anything less. The world is full of dangers, toils, and snares. But God calls us to hope in him. He overcomes oppression. He loosens the grips of empty, fleeting pleasures. If there is a way to sum up our faith as we live in this world, is that we have faith in the overcomer. We have faith in the overcomer. Now, one of the questions I like to ask people uh, about their just devotional lives or lives in general is what has impressed them about Jesus recently? What has impressed you about Jesus recently? This is in your life and in your devotional reading. You know what has impressed me about Jesus recently, especially in reading this passage? It's not only that he opposes the proud. He will call every injustice to account, right every wrong. That is impressive in itself. You know what's also impressive, though? is that Jesus not just opposes the proud, Jesus even saves proud people. Jesus saves proud people. Jesus seeks out proud people. Jesus sought out Saul of Tarsus. If there was ever a guy who had every reason in the world to believe that he could save himself, it was Saul of Tarsus, and Jesus saved him. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news. Uh, You may have heard of Kanye West, the famous hip-hop artist, one of America's most famous hip-hop artists. Now, I don't know Kanye West, and I get there's going to be some complicated factors in that. But I know that this was a guy who said that he is a god. And now he says Jesus is his king. You read the section in Isaiah and you see all the proud nations around Judah and there are little hints throughout that God has mercy even on proud people. You can see that in the words to Moab in chapter 16. You see that in words to Tyre in chapter 23. Perhaps the most beautiful words of mercy are to Egypt and Assyria, chapter 19. You start at verse 28, chapter 19, verse 28, or verse 18, excuse me. Verse 18. Words of mercy to proud people. He says, In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of those will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors. He will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, 
Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. This savior and defender of verse 20 is the one who said of himself, in the world you will have much trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The savior and defender, the one here, is the savior and defender for all people from all nations. That's why he calls all people from all nations to come to him. That's why we send out people to all nations because Jesus is a savior from people of all nations. This savior and defender is for all people, even proud people. Friends, that is all of us. Which is why we call you today, if you do not trust in Christ alone, to do that. Not to trust yourself to save yourself. Not to trust in the world to save, but to trust in Jesus to save you. The one who walked in this dangerous world without sin. The one who took the judgment for the pride of those he died for. Friends, do not be too proud to trust in Jesus. Do not think you are beyond his reach either. Christian, as we walk in the world, we are those who follow Jesus. Follow Jesus, the overcomer. Read of Jesus. See how he lived in the world. With his help, we follow after him by walking not in pride but humility, counting others as more worthy than ourselves, as more significant than ourselves. With our help, with his help, we walk in hope when we are oppressed because he rose from the dead and he's coming back to judge and make every right wrong. With his help and following his example, we say no to the pleasures of this world that are fleeting, the temptations from this world that would take us away from the Lord because we are convinced we have found something better and found someone better. With his help, friends, like him, we do not seclude ourselves from the world. Now we reach out to the world, reaching out to those in darkness, remembering that he is the one who lived and died for the world. So returning to Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, at the gates of Vanity Fair, Christian met a man who gave him this counsel right before he entered. He told Christian, let the kingdom be always before you and believe steadfastly concerning the things invisible. Let nothing that is on this side of the other world get within you. And above all, look well to your hearts and to the lusts thereof, for they are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Set your faces like a flint. You have all the power in heaven and earth on your side. Friends, let's pray. God in heaven, you are our one hope in life and in death. Help us, God, to continue to trust in Christ alone, our Savior and Defender. Would we hold out him for others as well? And would we hold on to him as we walk through this world? We need your help for this. In Jesus' name, amen.